0: It is good to be with you this morning. It's been a, a privilege to give me the uh, cue. I've got to turn this on. It's been a privilege to uh, worship with you this morning. As you have the opportunity, if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, and chapter nine. As uh, as we have the. As we have the privilege of being together this morning, allow me to ex- to to express my gratitude uh for the invitation to come and be with you. I'm had the privilege of getting to know uh Pastor Justin Nail now for the last four and a half years. We've had multiple opportunities to uh discuss many things and get to know one another very well, and so that's been a, a genuine blessing. And uh I'm I'm very grateful and honored that I've been afforded this opportunity to be with you this morning. I can express to you uh That our congregation has prayed for this congregation many times, and we will continue to do so. We pray the Lord's work would be prospered here, and we're certainly grateful that there is another godly, doctrinally sound Bible preaching church in the Rocky Mount area. And so, as we have the opportunity this morning, I'd like us to look at Luke chapter 9 and verses 51 through 56. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. You'll notice in this place of Luke's gospel what it says. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, would you that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Then let us look to God once more in prayer as we ask for His help in the preaching of His Word. Our blessed God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have the Word of God. We thank You that uh, for the many uh, faithful men who down through the ages have bled and died for the privilege of having the Bible in our hands this morning. We thank You especially... For the grace of your Holy Spirit, which is available to those who look in dependence upon him. That the words which we hear with our outward ears might be inwardly engrafted upon our own souls. We ask then your help now at this time to bless both preacher and hearer alike. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Jews of his own day, said of them, I bear them record. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Zeal, like so many attributes that we think about as being positive virtues, are not necessarily virtuous. Zeal, like love and like hate, are only good or bad according to the thing that they are focused towards. For if we love sin, that love is not a good thing. And if we hate God's Word, that is not a good thing. These things are only relative to the thing that they're aimed at. So zeal in like manner is something that is relative. Zeal for God is a good thing. So long, as we take the language of the Apostle, that it is according to knowledge. If our zeal is misplaced or if our zeal is mistaken because it is not consistent with God's Word, then we find that it is not a blessing, it's not a virtue, it's not something that we would say was commendable. To the contrary, that zeal then becomes a liability in our labors for God and His kingdom. In this year of 2018, we, we remember uh, many of you, I'm sure no doubt, have had the opportunity of thinking about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation or its commencement with Martin Luther going to the door of the church in Wittenberg and there nailing his 95 theses to the wall or to the door and then asking for a debate on those matters which he had enumerated. But, as interesting as uh, that history is, and as grateful as we are for men like Martin Luther, it needs to remi- we need to remember that statements like Paul's in Romans ten and verse two, having a zeal for God, which is not according to knowledge, is not something limited to the enemies of the cross of Christ. In fact, The Lord's own disciples may at times be said to have a zeal which is not according to knowledge. It might be said that Martin Luther was one such individual. As even though he was known for his very fierce defense of justification by faith apart from the works of the law, it must also be remembered that toward the end of his life, his zeal was also employed in a very sad way, against the Jews in Germany at that time. In fact, one of the last books he ever published was entitled, Against the Jews and Their Lies. Now, it needs to be fair to Martin Luther. uh, There was indeed things which uh, one would be right to criticize concerning the Jews of that day. But it also needs to be admitted That this treatise, rather than savoring the truth of God's Word, savored more the spirit of James and John in this particular place. It savored more of calling down fire from heaven to consume them than to extending the invitation of grace to them. And so we see that this man, full of zeal, at times it would have to be seen, used that zeal in an unfortunate and even ungodly way. But the same is true for every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we would say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And though we might say, Lord, we love you, and help us to make that love more fervent. So with every grace that is present in the life of the believer, there is some intermingling of the opposite of that grace. There is yet some weakness and infirmity. There is yet some sin and error that muddies up the best that we have to offer God. So it was true of Martin Luther, it was true of us, and as we look at the text this morning, we find it was true of James and John, two choice disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Him, uh, Peter, along with James and John, were the only three disciples that the Lord invited with him onto the Mount of Transfiguration, he recorded in this same chapter. These were the ones whom the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 3 had given that title, Sons of Thunder. And you can can somewhat surmise the reason for that. This is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These were the disciples of the Lord who respectively, James would have been the first of the apostles to be put to death for his witness of the gospel. And John the one who we find reclining on the breast of our Lord in the Last Supper. John was the one who, we're told countless times, he was that one whom the Lord Jesus loved. He was the one who wrote John's Gospel. He was the one who wrote the three letters of John. He was the one who penned the book of Revelation by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He was the one that we find in the New Testament who was called the apostle of love and rightfully so. But love is not the principal attribute you see exhibited here. There is a zeal, but it is not a zeal according to knowledge. It is rather a zeal altogether at odds with the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ and of His gospel. So, beloved, as we begin this morning, let's begin with this observation that true zeal for Christ must be consistent with a true knowledge of Christ and his gospel. True zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ must be consistent with a true knowledge of Christ and his gospel. And so, in looking at the text this morning, let us break it just into two headings. We'll notice in the first place the true zeal of Christ in verse 51. And then we'll see the mistaken zeal of James and John in verses 52 and 56, 52 through 56. The true zeal of Christ and the mistaken zeal of James and John. Notice with me in the first place the true zeal of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice in verse 51 that it says, "And it came to pass when the time was come." And literally in the Greek it could be rendered when the days were fulfilled. When the days had been filled up, if you will. We see this language in multiple places of the Gospels. We remember it notably at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, where in that place it says, when the days were accomplished. And so much this language is used for the fulfillment of prophecy. It is meant to be here a cue for us to understand that something important is taking place and a transition is happening. The Lord Jesus Christ is transitioning away from that Galilean ministry that He had been engaged in so uh, so vigorously now to set His face toward the cross. All of this, from this chapter onward toward the end of Luke's gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ is headed, as it were, figuratively in one direction, and that is the direction of the cross but you'll notice the occasion which brings this about. It isn't isn't the mere whim of our Lord Jesus Christ saying, I've grown tired of ministry in Galilee. I'd like to go toward Jerusalem and try my hand out there. No, it is according to the sovereign purpose and perfect providence of God. They're going toward Jerusalem because what? The time had come. The days had been fulfilled. The days have been fulfilled that we're told that He should be received up. Now, what is meant by these words, received up? The language here could be taken in two ways. We notice that you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when flanked on either side by Moses and Elijah, it says that they stood together talking about His exodus, translated variously as His decease or His departure, which He should accomplish At Jerusalem. Some people take these words to mean that the Lord Jesus, this is speaking of his ascension into heaven. Other commentators take these words as meaning that the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it speaks of his cross work, the atonement which which he would accomplish there. I rather take it as both things are intended everything that he would do his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. I think all of these things are meant. In summary, this is language indicative of the accomplishment of His redemptive purpose for God's people. That's what is being spoken of here, I believe. So the time had been, had been fulfilled that He should be received up. We're told He steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. You, you have the imagery almost of the language of Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 7. We're speaking of the Lord's servant. It said he had set his face like a flint. He had set his face like a rock, a rock that could not be moved or changed or redirected in any way. This was the Lord's direction that he was setting toward Jerusalem. And so in considering these words, And considering what our Lord Jesus was doing, we have here an image of the Lord's zeal. Now, we notice that there are ten chapters in this section, roughly, where the Lord Jesus Christ, at this point, when He's going toward Jerusalem, and then when He actually arrives for what is traditionally referred to as that Holy Week, that week in between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, a whole ten chapters in Luke's Gospel. In fact, much of what we love about Luke's gospel is in those 10 chapters. 21 of the 27 parables that are contained in the four gospels, 21 of them are in these following 10 chapters. In fact, 16 of them are unique to Luke's gospel alone. But why does Luke take 10 chapters when Matthew and Mark only take two? Well, we don't know, except that Luke is desiring to include a lot of material that would be found useful uh, in enumerating the nature and character of Christ and also His doctrine. But whatever the reason, He takes a circuitous route. It's not a direct route. He doesn't go immediately to Jerusalem. But it is, as it were, that the Lord Jesus Christ is determined. He is determined with a steadfast resolve to go to Jerusalem and to give His life a ransom for many. I'd like us to make a couple of observations before moving on from this verse. And we consider here in the first place the sovereign providence of God in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is remarkable when reading the Gospel of Matthew how often Matthew likes to insert at every turning point this was done to fulfill the word which was spoken by the prophet and etc. You see that many, many times like a refrain in Matthew's gospel it's true in the other gospels as well and so that language here in this verse when the days had been fulfilled when the time had come speaks something about the nature of God's sovereignty even in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord Jesus Christ did not make his own plans he had come to do his father's will and that principally consisted in his going to the cross to die for the sins of God's people Arthur Pink, he makes this statement concerning the sovereign providence of God in our Lord's traveling to the cross. He says, If ever the superintending providence of God was witnessed, it was here. From all eternity, God had predestined every detail of that event, that is the cross, that event of all events. Nothing was to be left to chance or to the capri of man. God had decreed when and where and how His blessed Son was to die. Not a thing occurred except as God had ordained, and all that He had ordained took place exactly as He had purposed. Our Lord Jesus Christ then was under the sovereign direction of His Father. He did that plan which had been purposed from all eternity. And beloved, the same is true for the Christian. You might be tempted to think that the Lord Jesus Christ was of preeminent importance in the plan of God, but it needs to be remembered that our Lord Himself taught us that our own lives are carried out in exactly that same way. Some of you may be familiar and even treasure the old hymn, His Eyes on the Sparrow, His Eyes on the Sparrow and I Know He Watches Me, language borrowed from Matthew chapter 10, where the Lord Jesus Christ he compares our value to that of sparrows. And then he concludes, he says, Are not you worth many? You're worth much more than sparrows. Then do you not think that your heavenly father will care for you? Now, there's one sense in which that could be taken in a very sentimental fashion. You can kind of think, Oh, well, that's very comforting, you know. That's one you'd like to put up on the refrigerator and look at very often, or frame with some needlework and hang it in the living room. But the context of the Lord's statements in that particular place are remarkable. They're remarkable for the comparison they have here. Jesus is going to a cross. And the statement he makes in Matthew chapter 10 concerns his disciples doing the same thing. He says, there's coming a time when you will stand before judges, and you will stand before kings, and you will give a testimony of my gospel, and they will persecute you, and you will suffer for my name. But then he adds this encouragement. What is the encouragement? God's eye is on the sparrow. He takes care of the sparrow. He'll take care of you. The immediate context then of those encouraging and comforting words is in the context of this promise. I'm going to a cross and you're coming with me. This is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ issued as that clarion call of discipleship. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The call of the gospel is always and finally a call to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and suffer and die with Him. The witness of Jesus Christ is not without consequence, and it will result ultimately in the hostility of the world toward us. And so the Lord Jesus Christ... Goes to a cross, but he doesn't do so except by the sovereign providence of his loving Heavenly Father. The same is true for us, beloved. I don't know what might be going on in your life. I don't know what crosses and losses you may be enduring, but this needs to be remembered. God's sovereignty extended to the finest details of our Lord's ministry and life, and beloved, they extend to us as well. There is great comfort in that truth. And in times of great difficulty and trial, they need to be appropriated freshly to our hearts. We need to again contemplate the fact that God is sovereign. He is on the throne. Or as it says in Revelation, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Not that He will reign, but He does reign. And there's great comfort in that truth. It is the child of God's stay in the midst of every gusty wind and billow. It is our comfort in this life, and it extends all the way to the life to come. I remember a lady one time when I was speaking to her. I was sitting at her kitchen table. There was a pastor's conference in Georgia, and I'd gone down there. And some of the pastors that had come, they had stayed in some of the homes of the members of that uh, church. And we were staying in the home of one family, and as we sat up late one evening... Uh, and we were fellowshipping together and sitting around the table. The husband and the wife were there. And as they were talking, I can recall the wife saying many times, I know God is sovereign, but. I know God is sovereign, but. And many times she, had exi- she was talking about so much of the difficulties they had faced. Her husband had lost his job. Their, sa- their savings had been depleted. He was having a great deal of difficulty finding another job. And it was very doubtful whether he would be able to. And so, time and time again, as she recounted to us the difficulties that they were facing, I and another pastor sat there and she would say, I know God is sovereign, but... And then following that but would be a statement which essentially undid her profession of faith in God's sovereignty. Beloved, we must be very careful to understand that a knowledge in our head is not appropriating that knowledge to our heart. You may have a whole lot of knowledge about the truth of God and His Word, which if not appropriated to your heart, will do you no good. It wasn't doing her good. It will not do us good. If we just say, well, I know, I know. Your pastor comes to you and says, well, you need to trust the Lord. The Lord is in control. And you say, I know, I know. I remember a pastor who used to tell his people quite frequently, he'd say, beware of your I knows. Beware of your eye, nose. Sometimes the, 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 your brothers and sisters in Christ come alongside and they say, listen, I want to tell you, the Lord is in control. He's got these things in hand. And you'll say, well, I know, I know. Well, you may know in your head, but that's a far cry from having the comfort of that truth appropriated again afresh to your heart. We need to do that day in and day out all through life's journey. So we see the sovereign providence of God in the life of our Lord Jesus. But I want us to notice, secondly, by way of observation on this verse, the centrality of the cross to Christ's mission. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world not to bring about social reform. Our Lord Jesus Christ didn't come, as His disciples had mistakenly hoped, to overthrow Roman rule and to bring about political reform. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not even primarily come to provide for us a good moral example, even though He is a moral example. That isn't primarily why He came. He came to die on a cross for the sins of His people. We see this same attitude exhibited by His apostles. They had a cross-centered view of all things. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. I wonder if we have that same mindset in thinking about the New Testament, in thinking about the Bible. Do we see the cross as the center of God's revelation? Do we understand that it's at the very heart of God's Word? Liberals, in our own day, they are very uncomfortable with the language of cross. They liken our Lord's death to something of divine child abuse. Uh, They will cast aspersions on the scheme as it's presented in the New Testament. But to the child of God, they realize that their salvation is found there with our Lord Jesus Christ. In His suffering and in His death. In the atonement He makes for sin. In the satisfaction He makes of God's justice. So we see the centrality of cross for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must note the centrality that that must be in our own lives. We must have a cross-centered focus in everything we do as Christians. The Lord Jesus Christ has said, If you would come after me, take up a cross. Take up your cross. And not only that, take up your cross daily. A.W. Tozer Speaking on this theme, he says, The man with a cross no longer controls his destiny. He lost control when he picked up his cross. The cross immediately became to him an all-absorbing interest. It became an overwhelming interference. No matter what we may desire to do, there is but one thing the Christian can do, and that is to move on toward the place of crucifixion. The Christian is absorbed in following his Savior's steps to Calvary. The Christian lives a life which delights in the suffering and the reproach of the gospel. The Christian is not at all embarrassed by the shame of professing that he believes in a man who he calls the Messiah, who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who gave Himself a sacrifice and then on the third day rose bodily from the grave. There's nothing, there's nothing at all of any shame for the believer in that truth. We see the centrality of the cross for our, in, the, in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was what He principally came to do to accomplish our salvation. But we should also notice in these words an an example of the steadfast perseverance of Christ. The steadfast perseverance of Christ. We talked about zeal, and we said that zeal without knowledge may err. But we see in the Lord Jesus Christ the perfect example of what godly zeal looks like. It results in a steadfastness and an endurance which our Lord Jesus Christ did, He went willingly to the cross. He went gladly to the cross because He knew exactly what that implied. The satisfaction of God's wrath. The redemption of God's people. We see this from a zeal to do God's will. And we know that Christ dying for the sin of men was indeed His will. In John 4.34 He says, My meat and my drink is to do the will of Him who sent me. In John 6, 38, he says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The Lord Jesus Christ had a zeal for God's will will to be accomplished. So as he looks toward Jerusalem, he looks beyond the fact that he will suffer and that he will die. He considers more importantly that God's will would be done. Oh, that we had such a disposition in all of our difficulties. Oh, that we could say like him, not my will, but thine be done. We notice also this was not only a love for God's will, but also a love for God's people. A love for sinners. A love for those whom he had come to suffer and bleed and died for. In Hebrews 12 and verse 2, we're encouraged to look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, and how. How? The immediate context is calling the Christian to endure hardship and suffering in the way that Christ did. Well, how did Christ endure hardship and suffering? He did it for the joy that was set before Him. But if you get into the context, you find what joy Jesus was looking to. The joy was His people. The joy were those sinners who would be saved by His sacrifice and at last brought into His heavenly kingdom through all eternity. Do you understand that it was Christ's joy at your redemption which made Him so willing to go to the cross? Some people will say you'll have sometimes good good pickers of knits. You get to be really good at theology and doctrine and sometimes you, you, you feel like you've got to be more doctrinally accurate than God. That's how some people are. And I remember one time having a conversation and saying that Jesus Christ went to the cross out of love for us. And that person said, no, 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 no. He went to the cross to do the will of God. He died for the glory of God. That's what he died for. Well, it's not a either or. It's both and, isn't it? It's both and. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ was eaten up, as it were, with zeal for God's glory. But he was also preeminently filled with a love for the people he had come to die for. And this was why he could go so willingly and set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. J.C. Ryle makes this comment, he says, forever let us bless God that we have such a ready and willing Savior. Forever let us remember that as He was ready to suffer, so He was also ready to save. The man that comes to Christ by faith should never doubt Christ's willingness to receive Him. The mere fact that the Son of God willingly came into the world to die and willingly suffered should silence all such doubts entirely. All the unwillingness is on man's part, not Christ. It consists in the ignorance and pride and unbelief and half-heartedness of the sinner himself. But as it relates to Christ, he is altogether ready to save. What a blessed comfort to us as we contemplate sometimes that Christ is able to save me. Perhaps he is, but is he willing? The answer is here, most clearly given, yes. The Lord Jesus Christ is not only an able Savior, He is a willing Savior. But you'll notice that this zeal was not only occasioned by His zeal for God's will to be done and glory to be exalted, not only from His love for the people for whom He had come to die, His love for sinners, but it was also according to His interests. He was His interest in setting an example. Now, I said Christ is not a mere example for us. It's true, He isn't but He is an example. And you have the Apostle Paul making a statement in 2 Thessalonians 3 where he prays, one of his prayers was that God would direct the believer's heart into the steadfastness of Christ. Into the steadfastness of Christ. That God would direct our hearts into the perseverance of Christ. It is as though he said he desires that that steadfastness which marked our Lord Jesus Christ in his going toward the cross would be true of us as well. In Philippians three thirteen and 14, you have an example of that in the Apostle Paul. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of steadfastness referred to by Paul in 2 Thessalonians. That's the kind of steadfastness that our Lord Jesus Christ had. It's the kind of steadfastness we ought to desire. Let me say this, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. And it's easy to think about that solely in terms of God's sovereign grace. But that is not at all inconsistent with this truth. We must exert ourselves in the direction of steadfastness. We must resolve inwardly that we will go wherever Christ commands us to go. We will do whatever He commands us to do. We will suffer anything we must suffer in order to bear a faithful witness to His gospel. We will go where Christ commands us. We will be faithful to Him unto death. We sing that hymn in our, in, our, in our hymnal. We sing, Faith of our fathers, holy faith. We will be true to Thee till death. I wonder if you are possessed of that same spirit of steadfastness. If you have that same resolve about your loyalty to Christ. Loyalty come what may. Loyalty, no matter what the consequences may be. Well, we see then true zeal exhibited by our Lord Jesus Christ. But let us notice, secondly, the mistaken zeal of James and John, verses 52 through 56. And it's occasioned by the rudeness of the Samaritans. In verses 52 and 53, the Lord Jesus sends messengers, and perhaps because they were a large party. He didn't want to show up in a Samaritan town and expect them to be taken care of, so He said, We're going to plan ahead. He sends messengers ahead into the village to make ready a place. But when they hear that Christ's interest is not to minister there, but rather just to minister in Jerusalem, they say, no, He can't stay here. And they reject the Lord Jesus. They say He's not welcome, nor His disciples. Well, this rudeness, is it occasions the resentment and anger and ire of James and John. We're told in verse 54, you'll notice what it says, his disciples James and John saw this, that is, the affront to their master's honor. They said, Lord, would you that we command fire to come down out of heaven and to consume them, even as Elijah. Now, if you have the ESV or another translation, you'll find those words, even as Elijah, in the footnotes. There's a variant reading there. The imagery is clear, and it's evident that they are borrowing such an example from Elijah himself. Now, we can see this, and and, and very quickly we could dismiss them as being out of line. That's what the Lord does. He rebukes them. But it ought to be acknowledged that there are some commendable aspects to what they do here. Their statement is not altogether uh, devoid of some good qualities, and I want us to note them. In the first place, it exhibits faith in Christ's commission the Lord had commanded them to exercise power and authority in his kingdom to cast out devils to heal all manner of sickness and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so they exhibited a confidence in that they evidently believed that if the Lord had given them leave fire would come down out of heaven and consume the Samaritan village what faith genuine faith We have to also acknowledge that it revealed great zeal for Christ's honor. I wonder if any of us have ever been so angered by an insult to the Lord Jesus Christ. And aren't they numerous in our own day? There is something good about a little bit of anger being stirred up within the heart, a holy anger born of zeal and love for Christ. Christ's honor had been reproached and they were angry about it. But you'll notice that it also demonstrates a submission to Christ's will. They didn't just do it. They said, Lord, would you, would you that we should call down fire out of heaven? They exhibited a submission to Christ's authority. They asked Him, and of course He denied them. But I wonder in church life how quick we are to undertake various endeavors and ventures without consulting God in prayer. I wonder how often it is in our own lives when making plans, we are so quick to set things in stone without ever going to God in prayer and saying, Master, would you that I do this or that? In this way, the disciples exhibited a commendable disposition. They were submitted and yielded to Christ's authority. And we should notice lastly that it manifested a very high regard for the Bible because it would appear that they have taken it from a biblical example. In 2 Samuel chapter, and excuse me, Second Kings chapter one, you have the example of Elijah sitting on a hill, and you remember the king had sent messengers to go inquire of the priests of Baal, and they being so, uh, they being so willing to do this, it brought about the anger of the prophet Elijah. Elijah then tells these messengers as they go to inquire at Baal, he says, "Tell your king, he's going to die, for what he has done." by praying to Baal, inquiring of Baal. You tell him he's going to die on his cot. He'll never recover from his sickness. Well, the messengers go back. Well, the king's angry at this, and he says, I'm going to send them. I'm going to send my soldiers to execute Elijah for saying such a thing. And you'll recall the captain shows up with 50 soldiers, and they command Elijah. They say, man of God, come down from the hill. And he says, well, if I'm a man of God... Let fire come down out of heaven and consume every last one of you. And that's what happens. Well, the king wasn't content with this. He sends another 50 soldiers and they show up and they tell, they tell Elijah, they say, man of God, come down from there. And he says, well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down out of heaven and consume you. And it does. The king sends one more troop of soldiers and this is how they come. They come to the foot of the hill and the captain of the troop bows down on his knees and he says, Oh, my Lord, please do not be angry. Please do not call down fire out of heaven. Please come with us to speak with the king. And he does. He comes with them. This is the precedent that they are setting when they say, should we call down fire out of heaven? Just as Elijah did. That's the idea. That's the spirit they see. They look at Elijah, whom just a short while before they had seen next to the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, so there is something commendable in what they're saying here, but it's not altogether commendable, and the Lord Jesus Christ rightly rebukes them. He says, perhaps perhaps not all within this town could be said to be guilty of what has been done, the, the insult done to the Lord Jesus. Perhaps it was the case that only a few people even knew that the Lord Jesus had purposed to come. Perhaps if the majority of the town had known They'd have been delighted to have the Lord Jesus come and to minister among them and to stay and to lodge. And so in one sense, calling down fire to heaven would have destroyed the wicked with the good. It needs to be also remembered that Christ had never responded in this manner, though He had been shamefully treated by many, the scribes and the Pharisees, and His own people at Nazareth, almost attempting to throw Him off a cliff. And yet Jesus never responded in this fashion. It needs also to be remembered that the example of Elijah is not altogether appropriate. Elijah was meant to be a man who came preaching fire and fury from God. Elijah was set to call out the sins of God's people and of the kings of Israel and to warn them of the judgment to come. That's precisely what he did. That is not what the Lord Jesus Christ came to do. He came, as we're told many places, to seek and to save that which was lost. And so he rebukes them. He rebukes them in verses 55 and 56. In verse 55, he identifies their error. You'll notice what he says. Again, a textual variant, so that if you're reading a modern translation, other than the New King James or King James, you may not find the words there except in the margins. But it says, He turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you're of. In other words... You haven't begun to understand what it is you're asking. Or perhaps he's saying, you're not certainly according to the spirit that I have tried to impress upon you. You certainly don't exemplify a gospel spirit, a large-hearted spirit toward sinners. That's the sense there that I take it in. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. It's like he told Peter when Peter said, no, you won't go to the cross. I'll never let that happen. He said, You savor not the things of God, but the things of men. It's the same essence there, what Jesus is saying here to James and John. You don't know what. You don't know what kind of a spirit you're of. You don't savour the things of God. You've not savored the spirit of my gospel. So he rebukes them in that way. And then he instructs them in verse fifty six. He says, For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Consistent with many other statements in the Gospels. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And John 3.17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him should be saved. Well, allow us then to make a couple of concluding observations. In the first place, let us notice how the best of God's servants may seriously err. If you're a Christian, and I would say especially if you're a young Christian and you've not walked with the Lord for any great length of time, let me say this. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you love Christ's church and you love your pastor, wonderful. Wonderful. But let let me say this there will come a time when the people of God's church and perhaps even the ministers of God's church will disappoint you. They may be guilty of grave errors. They may become guilty even of gross sin. Never allow those things to deter you from your devotion to Christ or your fellowship with His people. I've had too many conversations with people over the years who have said, I used to go to church. I used to be very active. And then there was some scandal in the church with the pastor or with a a split in the body of Christ. And they said, well... I'm not, I just can see that there's just a bunch of hypocrites in the church. I'm not going back. God forbid that our devotion to Christ and to His bride, the church, should be only so far as God's men are perfect. They're not. These were two eminent disciples of the Lord Jesus. Two great men who would do wonderful things for the Lord Jesus. Be used mightily for His kingdom. And yet they erred in a very serious way. Secondly, we ought to remark how the most sinful attitudes may adopt the most pious and holy appearance. Here it could be said that they had a zeal for Christ. And that zeal for Christ occasioned the desire to literally incinerate a village. That's been true down through the history of the church, whether we look at things like the Crusades, or whether we look at matters at the Inquisition, whether we look at some of the other horrors that were perpetrated during the Reformation. We think about some of the persecution that was done. We study those things, and what do we find? That very often those things were done in the name of Jesus Christ. We think about those who were martyred for their faith. We think about men like Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, men of the Church of England who for their Protestantism were put to death. And they were put to death with the confidence after they had killed Thomas Cranmer, they had had burned him at the stake, a man got up and he preached a sermon about how God was pleased with that man's death. Well, Let us never believe for a moment that the church is altogether beyond such things and never capable of doing those kinds of things again. And let us never believe that our own zeal, our personal zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ may not be exhibited in a very ungodly and sinful way. We live in very confusing times. We live in a time in our own nation where the political discourse is at a fever pitch. I don't think social media helps one bit. And I have seen Christians, people that I know personally, people that I know well, people who I am convinced love the Lord Jesus Christ, get on Facebook and say some of the most cruel and nasty things to people they dubbed as snowflakes or liberals or what have you. Now that doesn't mean their views aren't blameworthy or that we shouldn't enter into debate with people that we disagree with. But let us remember this. Everything we do ought to savor of Christ's Spirit. Everything we say and all of our engagements with our neighbors ought to testify our sincere faith, devotion, and submission to Christ's gospel. Let us see that our we don't take our sinful attitudes toward our neighbor and cloak them in the garb of self-righteous piety. Matthew Henry said, There may be much corruption lurking and stirring in our souls and hearts toward people, and we be unsensible to it. The last thing I want to close with this morning is this. In thinking about zeal, and thinking finally about our Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to mark this. The zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ was for the salvation of sinners. If you were here this morning and you were not a believer, if you're not someone who has come to Christ savingly by faith, maybe you're a young person here this morning. Maybe you've grown up in this church. or Maybe you've grown up under the sound of the preaching of God's Word. Maybe your parents have labored long and hard reading to you the Bible, teaching you about the things of God, exhorting you to turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you have as it were, given some consideration to these things, but you're still straddling on the fence. And I can't begin to say why that is, but I will say this. The gospel call is an urgent call. Perhaps one of the reasons you've not responded by professing your faith in Christ, turning to Him by saving faith, is because you're not entirely convinced He'll receive you. Maybe you know the wickedness of your own heart. But let me say this, if this text reveals anything, it reveals the merciful disposition of our Savior Jesus Christ. It reveals to us how a people deserving of hellfire were spared, notwithstanding their rejection of Christ. Could it be that our Lord Jesus had hoped that there would be a time when again they might hear His word? There might be a future date when they would be glad to receive Him into their village. Or perhaps it would be His apostles at a later time coming to preach the gospel and they would hear it and they would believe to the saving of their soul. Our Lord Jesus is very patient and that patience is born out of a zeal for your salvation. If you've not looked to Christ in faith, you need no better reason than to be convinced that Christ will gladly receive you. I love the words of the old hymn. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Amen. Let us pray.